Welcome to the Issa Rugby Podcast, where we bring you the latest news, updates, and interviews. More insights from the Springboks. It is the Springboks champions of the world. The Junior Box, the Blitzbox, our two national women's teams, local competitions, and more. The mid to late 90s was a tumultuous time in South African rugby history. It included massive highlights such as the 1995 Rugby World Cup victory, the 1998 Tri-Nations triumph, 17 successive test wins and landslides over Wales and Australia. But there were also the first series defeat against the All Blacks and a first loss against Wales. One man saw it all and he is Mark Andrews. My name is the Young Borchard, and in this, our second installment celebrating the 25-year anniversary of the 1995 World Cup, we chat to the man who also became the first Springbok to reach the magical milestone of representing South Africa in 50 tests. Russell, surely into Bisa again. In fact, it's Andrews. Over the line. Mark Andrews then with his third international try for South Africa and their fifth in this quarterfinal against Western Samoa. Mark, thanks for joining us. Um, it's great to have you on the show and to, to talk a bit about what happened 25 years ago. But before we do that, uh, can you just give us a bit of an idea? What are you up to nowadays and um, how have you experienced the, the lockdown in the last couple of months? Yeah, well, firstly, I only feel about 28 years old. So the fact that I played in the World Cup 25 years ago feels pretty unbelievable. Um, currently, I'm sitting in Belito in Durban. Um, my actual home is in East London. So I spent lockdown with my fiancé and my three kids in East London um, on our little estate there. And we had a phenomenal time. It's basically a farm on the Ganubi River. So we weren't um, under the lockdown um, like the rest of the country was because we were on a farm so we could go for for walks and got a full gym there, swimming pool. So we were pretty active. It actually felt like a very long December holiday. Oh, that's wonderful. And obviously back back, back at your roots, you're a, you're in Eastern Cape Boiki at Hard, grew up there and went to school there. Um, but you also mentioned, like you said, now you feel 28, so that means you were three years old in 95. <laughs> um, but But... You were probably a bit older, but but you were still one of the younger members of the squad in 1995. And I think that opening game against Australia was only your 10th test for the Springboks. What was it like being one of the younger members of the squad? And do you think there was maybe a bit of extra pressure on you to perform, uh, you know, lift the levels or something like that? Well, I wouldn't say there was extra pressure on me to perform, but um, you must remember we only came out of isolation in 92. I think we played the first test against Australia and New Zealand. And then 93, uh, the box toured um, Australia, played three tests there, um, and then played Argentina at the end of the year. I started playing in 94. So, in the 93, I went to the Springbok tour where I got capped. I didn't play a test, but I played four games, I think three or four midweek games. Sat on the bench for the two tests, but didn't get a run on. So, even though I was young, um, by the time we came to the World Cup, I was still probably one of the more experienced players because uh, I'd played the whole of 94. I played that tour to New Zealand. Uh, where we played the three test matches. Uh, end of the year, we played um, the tour to Europe, where I think I played four test matches. I played against England in 94 as well. So 
one or two warm-up games in 95, I think. So even though I only had 10 test matches under my belt, I still was one of the more experienced players. And I played every test match from 94. So, but our whole side, I can remember someone going through the stats. Our whole team in 95 had about as many caps as I think two or three of the Australian players. Campisi, Lana, much of the other player was. Just those three players had more caps than the whole Springbok squad combined. So it just showed the inexperience of our whole side and not just mm-hmm. me. Um, like you mentioned, it was it was early days since our readmission. I think James and Francois were probably the most experienced members of that of that squad. And at that stage, they they were in the high teens. They hadn't even played twenty tests yet. So, yeah, so in terms of that, I mean, uh, it's a buzzword in rugby and saying that you know you create a bit of a, a balance between the exuberance of youth and the, hmm. the cool, calm heads of experienced players, but. Looking at it from that point of view, you you guys basically didn't have, have that because even even though you were one of the younger members, you also brought a fair bit of experience. Correct. Um, but the nice thing was I didn't feel um, different because, as you said, the whole side were inexperienced. So we played um, the majority of those guys that had been on the tours in 94 uh, to New Zealand and the UK. And I think that's probably what built that side in 95 in that – we went through hell in New Zealand. We were the first side to go there after the 81 Flybomb Tour, um, mm-hmm. which was an incredibly um, emotional and tough tour for both spectators and players in New Zealand um, as well as South Africa. So we were the first side to go there and we were under immense uh, media scrutiny. Um, I've always said I've, I've got no desire to be a, a movie star because for those couple of weeks when we arrived in New Zealand, um, that's probably what movie stars go through. We were hounded mm-hmm. at our hotels, at training sessions with, I think, every single media person in New Zealand because it created so much um, unhappiness in, in 81. And for us to come across as a unified side in 94 um, was, a, was a lot of pressure on all of us. But we had to dig mm-hmm. deep. They They... They bust us from the north of New Zealand to the south, back to the middle, back to the north. I mean, they made that tour hard for us. And I think that ultimately ended up building the character of that side. And then at the end of the year, we went to the Kitch to the UK. Um, and again, we played, I think, the, the four nations in, in the UK. And again, it was cold, it was wet, it was miserable. And mm-hmm. we were still amateurs. So the, the rugby world made it hard for us to come back in, especially the fact that we were looking like we were going to be as good as we'd been shooting our mouths off in isolation that we could be. So mm-hmm. I, I think by the time 95 came along, even though we didn't have the experience of the actual games and test matches, we had a huge amount of experience on, on toughing it out as a group of players. Speaking of experience, let's go to that opening game against against the Wallabies. Like you mentioned, um, three of their, their players or something like that had more experience than the whole Springbok squad combined. What was it like facing the then defending world champions at Newlands on a, on a beautiful day in Cape Town? Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I can remember that day um, for all the wrong reasons for me is that myself and James Dalton couldn't find each other in the lineups. So right up until then, I'd been pretty much the go-to guy in the Springbok side for lineups uh, in 94. 95 came along, we were against Eels. Um, we were probably one of the best lineup jumpers in the world at that stage. And James and I just had a horrible day. So for me, even though we won the test, and I remember Peter Hendricks running around Campisi, 
and Joel Skrull in that great try on the right-hand side from that 8-9 uh, backline um, short side move. For me, it was a pretty terrible day in that one of the reasons I was on the field was for my line-out ability. And I think I only got about two line-outs. But um, mm -hmm. luckily, it's a team game. And uh, I fought another, well, 13 other players besides for James to pull me through. It's, it's interesting that you mentioned the lineouts because it's something that I wanted to ask you in any case. Um, I think I'll get back to it a bit later. Let's go back to the, to the World Cup first. You didn't play against Romania against Canada and you were back in the squad to face Samoa at lock in the quarterfinals. You also scored a try there. Do you think there was perhaps a risk you know, that, that guys might lose a bit of match sharpness by not playing all that often, missing out two games in a World Cup? You clearly don't know Kitch Christie. I didn't watch many of his training <laughs> sessions. Kitch Christie built all his sides on a fanatical level of fitness. So it probably would have been easier on all of us who didn't play those two matches to have played against Romania and Canada. We would have been fresher for the, the quarterfinal because one thing Kitch could do was, I mean, I can still remember the week of the final at Megawatt Park uh, in Joburg. He had us doing hill sprints and about 20 minutes of, of, I don't want to use the word what they use in the army, but just a stuff-up session. This was the Tuesday <laughs> before the final. I mean, how much more fit are you going to get? We've been beaten up for eight months um, before that, from the, the end of the year, uh, the two at the end of the year before. And on the Tuesday, I can still remember thinking, this man is mad. What is he doing <laughs> making us do hill sprints and push-ups and burpees and squats? And, I mean, that's crazy. So... We were not uh, <laughs> um, uh, off our pace. Uh, it was probably a relief to be chosen to, for the quarterfinals so we can get in the field and actually play, not have to go through all the fitness that the non-playing guys went through. <laughs> and, and the fitness obviously came in very handy in, the, in those last 20 minute, minutes against the All Blacks in, in the final. I want to chat a bit about Samoa. Um, they were a lesser-known entity at that stage. Was it difficult playing against a team that you didn't know so much about? And then also, I mean... They were a tough opponent. They they bring they bring an edge to the game. You had the the battle of Buti Rasmus just the week before that. Um, Peter Hendricks and James Dalton were suspended because of ill discipline. So now you're facing a, a tough opponent here, guys. Who you know they fly in with with heavy hits. I remember the one. There was a a, a shoulder neck charge on Eust, which in today's rugby would have been a clear red. red. Card. Yeah. Um, th that guy just got a, just got a penalty against him. Was it difficult playing against an opponent like that in a quarterfinal? You know, it is difficult because of the fear of being injured. It, it wasn't so much you didn't know them. You must remember in, in 93, when we played in the Super 10, Samoa played as a province and they were based in Auckland. So we played um, as, as provincial sides against Samoa and we knew most of those players. We also, I, my first game against Samoa for the Sharks then got sent off a red card because I had a Kotanga tackle put on me by one of the players and uh, lost my head and caught him about 10 minutes later and tried to kill him with a Kotanga cat to tackle. The ref <laughs> saw me and I got sent off. So um, I was very aware of how tough and, and how physical they were. Um, we weren't scared of losing against them. We just did not believe that we could come close to losing against them. But we were careful of, of the injuries they could inflict on us. And it, it actually happened. I mean, Juba broke his hand. I fractured yep. my rib. I got cleaned out um, trying to stop a try on the right-hand corner of the open side of, of Ellis Park. And the hooker lined me up from about 20 meters away. And still one of the hardest hits I've taken in my life in rugby field. 
And it was our biggest fear as all the players was the, the, the physical cost that game would take on us. And it did. I mean, Juba, who was, was one of our years of that 95 campaign, we nearly lost him for the semi in the final because of yep. Samoa. But luckily for for both of you, you you managed to pull through. I mean, it it can't be easy playing with a with a with a rib injury at that at that intensity and at that level. Um, injuries aside, the, the game against Samoa was also the return of Chester, um, who got injured before the World Cup started, and and because of Peter Hendricks' suspension, he was back in the squad. He was a bit of a talisman at that stage, and I think a lot of the campaign for the World Cup was built around him. So. Was it good to have a guy like Chester back and then he came through and he scored those four tries in that in that quarterfinal? It was absolutely fantastic. I mean, Chessy, Chessy was my roommate in 94 in New Zealand. Um, and besides for his ability to to hustle you on a pool table, and uh, he had the quickest <laughs> down-down, I think, in Springbank history till to this day of a beer at a fans meeting afterwards. He was a proper rugby man. I mean, he grew up in the Western Cape, came from a rugby family, and was it? A genuine rugby man, um, and and Chessy did his talking by the way he played, and he was also a very nice guy. He just really was a nice guy. So to have him back in '95, and also you must remember, we were all very aware of of, of um, the, the, the the racial situation in South Africa at that stage. We just come out of isolation. We all knew exactly the reasons for isolation. So for us, um, as incredible as, as it was to have Chester in our team, just for the way he could play. It was also fantastic because we honestly felt like we represented all of South Africa, and we want to mm-hmm. we wanted to represent all of South Africa and bring in mm-hmm. and having Chester uh, Chester in the side again, just kind of rounded off a great um, um, event in that uh, he was just a great spokesman for rugby and he was just a great South African. Chester scored his four tries. You got on the score sheet that day. Uh, Chris so barged through from close range. Uh, went in the bag, and then it was down to Durban, which was your adopted hometown at that stage, um, and it was bucketing down. Apart from the rain and, and, the, and the ladies trying to clean and dry the pitch before the match, what stands out for you about that test, your first at number eight? You know, well, besides for the fact that I was playing eight and I was terrified out of my mind because I was playing against Ben Azi, who was, who was also one of the huge names in World Rugby as the eighth man. Um, I'll never forget at, at the Shark Stadium at Kings Park, um, there was a warm-up area alongside the change room under the, the grandstand. And yeah. we warmed up, got ready, and then the game got delayed. Um, I'm a bit hyperactive at the So I was uh, wandering around the back, just kicking a ball, passing, trying to get my nerves under control. And I remember coming around the corner, and the referee was standing there, and there's like a little section outside the change rooms where officials would normally meet and the captains would, would have a chat to the ref before the game. And I think it was a tour, tournament director and it could have been the, the chairman of the RB. Um, and they were standing having a heated discussion. And I was in the far corner, couldn't quite hear things, but I could remember, we were all very aware that the game didn't go ahead, we were out the World Cup. And I can remember Louis late, I mean, raising his voice and saying, gentlemen, this game is going to go ahead no matter what. So understand that. There is no there is no debate about cancer in this game. It is going to go ahead even if it goes ahead at midnight. Get that through your heads. There will be a riot down in this country if this game doesn't take place. And walked <laughs> off. I can remember thinking, yes, I'm glad he's on our side because <laughs> he was an intimidating <laughs> man and the game did go ahead. I think there were 
the French are obviously probably debating and saying this in the game can't go ahead for safety reasons and that and Louis Late uh, kind of just steamrolled over everybody and said it is going to take place. Um, and then the game took place and I think I got away with playing eighth man in that game because I didn't know a clue what the hell I was doing. The last time I played eighth man was under 15 at school. Um, so, and, and the eighth man in the World Cup 95 was very integral um, in the defensive structures from set phases and scrums. So the eighth man would stand mm-hmm. out in certain positions and be part of your defensive structure, which I hadn't ever had to worry about because my head is normally in the scrum as a lock. I can remember, if you remember, if you can recall that game, we ended that game on our try line for five minutes with the French trying to attack. And I was staying off the side, and all I could picture was Benazi picking that ball up, me slipping the tackle, and him scoring, and us losing the game because of my missed tackle, because of my being uncertain about my, my, my when I could leave the line, when I could uh, push the offside. So for mm-hmm. me, it was one of the most terrifying games I've played in my life, purely because I just ran around and was winging it. I don't know what the hell I was doing most of the time. Um, but it was a phenomenal game. I think it was a game that just built a little bit more belief and character in our side to prepare us for that World Cup the next week, the final. So talk us through that move from Lockton. About why, why did Kitsch do it? Yes, he never really gave me... The, <laughs> the reason he gave me was that we needed um, some more weight in the scrums. So his belief was in, in that, and you must remember, if you go back and look at how we played, that's why Jibba was so important to our, our, our start of play then, was that you could kick the ball dead and the opposing side had to then kick off a 22 to restart the game. So they changed the rule after 95 World Cup. If you kick the ball dead, it's the, the other side scrum wherever the kick, the kick took place. And Jubba's got a big boot in him. So... If Juba got the ball, he just kicked the ball dead. And then they'll kick off against you. And obviously, you want guys to get under the ball. Um, so, me being a, a lock in retrieving the ball um, was a bonus. But also, just the line out and the scrum. So, the game then had quite a lot more scrums than it had today. So, Kitsch believed that if we kept their pack under pressure of the scrums and tied them out, um, forced them to kick to us, get the ball to Juba, kick it dead. Let them kick to us and try and win the game with penalties um, because uh, Kitsch was a very statistical coach um, and he believed that test matches at that level were won by penalties and drop kicks. That's what he believed. Uh, he was proven right in the final by Joel's drop kick. But, um, and, and the line-outs, they had Benazi, they had uh, a very big, the, uh, Olivia Ruma, they had a very big line-out um, team. We had Ruben, Francois and Strali at the back. All three were entered with mm-hmm. jumpers. So, Kitch was just mm-hmm. fearful that um, if I went to the front or stayed in the front, they'd throw to the back and win the ball and put us under pressure. If I went to the back to try and counter that, they'd throw to the front and maul us and, and boss kick us. So I think he wanted to bring in an extra line-out element. So by putting me at eighth man, it then closed their attacking ability off the middle and the back mm-hmm. um, and put Kubis in the front. And like you just explained to us a bit earlier, in the opening game, you and James didn't really find each other all that well. But looking back at the matches in those years, lineouts were generally not very clean. I mean, you weren't really allowed to lift like they do nowadays. Um, you often poached the position ball, probably a bit more than it happens today. Um, and you just explained how much emphasis and planning went into those into those lineouts. So that was one part of it, you know, ensuring that your lineout performs well. And then the scrums. 
Um, do you think the plans around those set pieces, uh, lineouts and scrums, actually in the end contributed to winning the World Cup? Yeah, I'd like to think so also, because you must remember, if you have a very strong pack, and as I said earlier, your eighth man stood out in defence from scrums. So after the World Cup, they changed the rule where the eighth man have to be bound, had to be bound in the scrums. But your eighth man stood out. So if you had the, there's your seven guys in the, in the scrum remaining were strong and, and could hold eight against them, your eighth man then became an extra defensive player in your, in your defensive line. So if you had a weak pack, your eighth man would often have to commit to the scrum to stop you getting pushed off the ball. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think it was, again, part of Kitch's plan by having Kubis and, and um, Hannes, Kubis at 128 kilograms, Hannes at 118, I was 114 kilograms then. Um, so by adding me into the into the scrums, even though Australia was 108, the weight difference wasn't a big difference. But it did help in the lineouts, as I said. So, and I think also Kitch just wanted it. He used to like surprises. He used to like doing things different. So, I mean, I've got no idea what the French thought about uh, me playing eighth man. I don't think they worried too much. But then I know I had a lot of chess to Ian Jones um, the years after I retired. And he was saying the All Blacks couldn't quite work out what I was doing at eighth man because they thought I was a much better lock than I would ever be an eighth man. But they they didn't take up too much time worrying about me and their preparation. Um, probably Kitch would have wanted them to, to to spend a lot more time trying to work out what the hell I was going to do at the, and what threat I was going to pose. But they were aware that the lineouts it just gave us an extra bone area in the lineouts against it. I'm gonna I'm gonna skip the match itself because I think everyone has seen it often enough and spoken about it. Let's talk about what happened afterwards and the celebrations that <laughs> night in Joburg. Was it a was it a special and a big night for you guys? Yeah, it was phenomenal. Eh? Um, I, I was young and you know, <laughs> at, at 23 years old, and the pressure on me in the last two weeks by playing out of position uh, was immense. And people often say, uh, "A 95 World Cup must be the highlight of my sports career," and I actually say. As a result, it was a highlight, but it wasn't the actual highlight of my career. It was probably one of the lowlights in the sense of this mm-hmm. last two weeks. And I can remember going to the practice, the final practice, driving to Ellis Park, and there was a billboard, uh, not a billboard, one of those newspaper things get, that get stuck in the side of the lamppost. And I don't know what, mm-hmm. the, I could have been the star, the, I don't know what paper it was. And it actually said, Will Andrews cost us the World Cup final. Sure. I was a 23-year-old youngster. I didn't have, as I said, a huge amount of, of test experience. And, and to play with that pressure on me, I mean, I didn't enjoy it. It was, it was. Uh, I mean, the week after the World Cup final, I ended up in pneumonia in bed. I didn't take part in the, in, this, in the things around the country. I was as sick as a dog. I think my body had just emotionally, it just couldn't take anymore. Um, so for me, it was a hell of a tough tough two weeks, which kind of ruined the World Cup for me because if I was playing lock, I would have been in my element. I mean, I, I was starting to rate myself as being mm. one of the best locks in the world to take on the best locks in the world. And all of a sudden, I put it eighth man. So, but I can, I'll never forget that night. I mean, I can remember leaving Ellis Park in the bus and we must have had 15, 20 police cars and motorbikes surrounding our bus on that highway getting back to Santon. And we must have had 40 cars just trying to get guys hanging out the windows, waving the flags. And we got chased. It was like a movie scene. We got chased from Ellis Park all the way back to Santon, where we were staying. And when we arrived, I remember seeing all the Caspers, the Peace Caspers, and the cops were standing and had linked, interlinked arms. And they were trying to make a space for us to get off the bus and get into the hotel. But there were just thousands of people there. 
Um, and I remember just like being in awe that all these people have actually come to see us. I mean, like it, it was, it, it was only starting to sink in then what we'd achieved. And it was a, we, most of us didn't even go out that night because we were firstly too emotionally shattered. And then secondly, yeah. I mean, we couldn't leave the hotel without being mobbed by hundreds of people. So I think I just spent the night in my hotel room with a bottle of champagne by myself, just, just kind of trying to absorb what had happened. Probably the best bottle of champagne you've ever had. Absolutely. Um, on, a, on a bit of a more somber note, Mark, um, since 95, it's, it's been a sad, a sad story for, for the squad. You've lost a number of players in management. Um, Kitch Christie, Ruben Creer, Joost van der Westhuizen last year, Chester and James, William, uh, James Small passed away. Um, it, must, it must be tough to lose so many friends from a, quite a close-knit squad. Who are, most of them who are still pretty young. Yeah, you know, it, it, it really is a hard part. I mean, there's one guy you, you didn't mention. There's a guy called Ron Holder. Ron Holder was our mm -hmm. blood kinesiologist. Um, he was like our undercover uh, kind of health guru. He had big wild hair. If you look at photographs, you may see him in one or two. He wasn't officially part of our World Cup um, campaign, but he was the first, our kids first um, passed away, and then it was him, then Ruben. Um, and it's and it's tougher because you, as I said, like like Yurst was probably um, the first one that really kind of hit me. Um, I know Ruben had been ill for a while. It was kind of, but um, yeah, it, it, it's 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 hard to put into words. Eh? Um, as I said to start this interview, I, I honestly feel like I'm 28, and and I to think that guys, I'm mean, like James has passed away, Chester, I'm like it's kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, it's a very hard thing to absorb. And I think most of us haven't applied our minds too much to it because it's a hard mm -hmm. thing to accept that quite a few of our, of our players um, are no longer with us. Um, just makes us realize that uh, we've got limited days and we need to make the, make the most of them. Uh, Mark, I want to go back to, to the late 1990s, 97 in, in particular. Uh, by now, you had, you had moved back to, to lock. You've played quite a few more tests, more experienced. And then the British and Irish Lions came to South Africa for their first visit in 17 years. Um, it, the series didn't end well for us, and, and I think you got injured in the second test. Uh, what do you remember about hosting the Lions in South Africa and uh, with them coming here again next year? What can people look forward to? You know... There are not many things I regret in my career. I was lucky enough to win World Cups and Tri-Nations and Curry Cups and the rest of it. Um, I experienced some incredible moments, but one of probably my saddest moments was in that Lions tour. Um, Saru had lost its mind and appointed two legends of Swinburne history in Coral and, and Kat Small, two players that I looked up to and admired, and they were my heroes as, as a lighty watching them play provincial rugby. Um, mm -hmm. But it's so frustrating because I don't think that Lions side was one of the best ever. That they were average to say the least, I think. But we were in such turmoil um, as a, as a team, as as players, with our management, with our coaching structures, and there's so much hype that goes with the Lions too. It's probably second only to a World Cup as rugby player, and and it was one that we should have won and we should have won convincingly, but. We were, we were so badly prepared. Um, we had so many player and coach issues that it became a very, very, very unhappy period in my life. And and mm -hmm. I, I regret it. For a spectator, it's phenomenal. I mean, you've got that, that 
crazy um, lion supporters come out and they they give it everything and they fill that stadium and there's a huge amount of vibe and, and atmosphere. Um, mm-hmm. As I said, it's second to only a World Cup and, play, and playing in, in finals of World Cups. And it wasn't a happy time for me. It wasn't a happy time for South African rugby supporters either. But it, looking next year, I hope this COVID stuff sorts itself out. And it's one it's one series that I think is even bigger than a Springbok All Black series. Is a Springbok against the British and Irish Lions. Yeah, I think a lot of people are are keen to to see the world return to some form of normality, so that we can welcome our friends from from Britain over here next year. Let's talk about something a bit more upbeat and maybe something that would have brought you uh, more joy. You were the first Springbok to reach 50 tests. Yeah. How special was that? It was unbelievable. Eh? Because, I, I mean, James Moore was ahead of me and started, as you said, I think he was in 18 test matches uh, when I was on eight or nine. Um, and, yeah, I, I was lucky enough. I think I missed one, uh, one or two test matches from the time I started until I, I played 50. I was very lucky as far as injuries and, and being dropped by a whole host of different Springbok coaches who, who came on the scene. But it was, it was very special. Mm-hmm. I, I played it at, um, in, in the UK on the end of the year tour against Wales um, and played it at Wembley, it, which is an unusual uh, um, stadium. It, mm-hmm. it was, it's, it's one of those that no one can take away from me. I mean, lots of guys have played 50, a lot of guys have done 100, but I was lucky enough to spring my player to ever play 50 test matches and I was incredibly blessed and I played in a great side at that stage um, we had a phenomenal side uh, our Nick still had his well he was starting to lose the plot at that stage but still we'd had a, a great run of the Springbok side and, and it was phenomenal to be part of a phenomenal Springbok setup at that stage yeah, looking back at those years, you were part of that squad that won 17 straight. You, you started in all 17 of those of those victories. Well, you definitely played yeah, in all played of them. Yeah, played all of them. That must have been a big highlight for you to 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 go through that. That, that, that Carlos' last test was the first one, and then 16, I think, underneath. Yeah, it was it was a phenomenal time to be a Springbok. I mean, I'll say I was very lucky, and as tough as it was in '94 to go through that tour at New Zealand, where we got. We got stuffed around like you can't believe by the New Zealanders and the officials. And then at the end of the year tour um, to the UK, they were tough tours. They, they, they weren't, it either made you or broke you as a player and as a team. And I'd like to think 94 made us what we were, became in 95. And then we were able to take that experience that some of the senior players had built by that stage. And then in the 97 under uh, Nick, we had a great coach when he first started. He still had his mind and left his ego in Western Province. And um <laughs> and we we played some phenomenal rugby. We had and it was it was fun playing for Springboks then because we didn't think we could lose. I mean, even when we were down in the game, we just had such belief in ourselves and, and our structures and and each other that it, it was it was just fantastic to be a Springbok during those times. And those um were probably some of my happiest times being a Springbok. We had Gary Tash as the captain who taken over, he's a, he's a great man. We had great players, I mean, good people. Um, and, yeah, I was just very blessed to be part of that. Another interesting thing, looking back at your career, Mark, um, it wasn't a, a, a very long international career. You played from uh, 94 till 2001, yeah. I think, so let's say seven, eight years. But you played under six different Springbok coaches. First Ian Mack, <laughs> yeah. Kitsch, Andre Markgraf, Karel Duplessis, Nick, 
And finally, Harry for you. And, um, and Charlie. That must well, have been quite a... And Rudolph, of course. Rudolph, uh, but uh, he, I was still playing when he was there. Yeah, you know, um, people often say to me, what, is the, what do I consider my highlight um, or best achievement in my, in my rugby career? And I always say tongue-in-cheek, that it was my ability to change my game to suit the, 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 the desires of six or seven different Springbok coaches. Because every coach believed that I should play a different way or in a certain way. And um, it was probably the hardest thing I ever did. I would have loved to have been part of an all-black structure that a guy started and ended his, ended his career under two coaches. Because once you play a certain way yeah. and that coach likes the way you play, you just get better at playing that way. Um, but for I to change my, the way I played all the time. One coach wanted me to hit rucks more. One wanted me to be more in the defensive line. One wanted me to carry the ball up more. I mean, every coach had a different idea of how I should play. And the other problem was is that every coach who came in had a preconceived idea of, of who I was and, and, and how I played. So I never, mm-hmm. which is very frustrating because as I started getting, getting into the, into the, the um, routine of playing a certain way, I knew exactly how Mac wanted me to play. And then Kitsch came along and took me probably five or six or seven test matches to work out how Kitsch actually wanted me to play and what, what my role was. And then he left. And then from Markroft, who, who wanted me to play in a certain way, and then Nick came along and then Carl. And, and I, I find it very disruptive to my career. And I think I probably could have been a much better player if I'd played under, for example, um, two or maybe three coaches. I also must remember, at 29 years of age, I retired from international rugby because I was told by by South African rugby that I was no longer required. Um, I was by, by Charlie and and by um, by the, the Sharks, Kevin Putt, who come along. They said to me I was a spend force and, and I had nothing left to offer. But the fact that I'd probably missed five games in six years and I was, I don't think I was very well managed, but no play in those days is very well managed. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the end of my career, I must say, when I left South African Rugby at 29, I was happy to leave because I was tired of the politics. I was tired of all the the, the nonsense that we, all I wanted to do was play against the All Blacks. So I would have, uh, if they let mm-hmm. me play against the All Blacks every weekend, I would have been a happy man. And talking about coaches, one of your uh, former teammates uh, went on and, and he became quite a successful coach. So let's just to wrap up. Talk about Rassi, uh, the World Cup last year. How did you how did you enjoy that? And and what do you think, you know, for, for the guys that won in Japan last year? And just looking ahead a little bit to the Lions next year, what can what can yeah, we expect? The World Cup last year was probably one of my best moments as a rugby player having not run in the field. Um Rassi, I had the honor of handing out the book jerseys um, the World Cup year. I think it was to Argentina, or maybe it was the year before. But I remember I asked him, I said, like, what do you want me to say? Is there any special message you want me to pass on to the players? And he said, Mark, I just want them to pass on that message that people must fear playing the Springboks. You're not mates. You don't send WhatsApp messages. And you know what? There's a time and a place for that. But I want to get that fear of playing the Springboks again. And he said, in our era, we went through a stage on a neck where where countries didn't like to play against us because they feared us, not us being dirty, that we were just hard. Like the All Blacks have a name and a reputation of being being tough. Um, 
and and he started that and that's something which I can recognize and I really appreciate it that I think suddenly the Springbok players in the last probably decade or so played for the wrong reasons um, social media um, the image everything else but at the end of the day that jersey stands for something incredibly special and Rossi wanted the guys to understand the responsibility that came with wearing that jersey and I was highly mm-hmm. impressed with him when when he asked me to, to speak about what it means to be a Springbok and to earn that respect on the field. So I had a, a vested interest in that in that side last year because I felt like I was lucky enough to just give a little bit about what 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 was to be a Springbok to them. Um, and they ended up playing exactly the way that, especially um, when they played against England, uh, it, it was it was like men playing against boys, and it was that. Thing that we aspire mm-hmm. to try and play like, um, to, to, to play with that physical domination that that guys believe they were going to lose before they ran in the field just because they couldn't take you on physically. I must say, when I won the World Cup in 95, I was part of that side, I never shed a tear. It was just, it was, I feel I was probably too young and I didn't understand the, the importance of it. And I'm not, mm-hmm. not ashamed to say that I sat and watched that final with my one son. And at the end of that final whistle, I cried. Sat and I cried with him, and I was like, "It is reliving everything from '95 that I never got a chance to, to, to feel or to experience." And also, it was just—I probably cried out of joy of seeing the Springboks play in a way that made me incredibly proud to be a Springbok. Yeah, wow, that's a that's a that's a great way to look back at it. Um, and yeah, just looking forward to next year with the with the Lions on their way. Do you think uh, it'll be a, a, a an evenly matched tour? Do you think they'll come here with with thoughts of redemption? How do you how do you see it playing out? Yeah, well, you know what, it's a hard one because we haven't seen the guys play this year. So um, we have a new coach in the Springbok setup. Even though Russie's hand will still be on that on the tiller, it's not Russie coaching. Mm-hmm. Um, I would have liked to have seen him stay in for longer. Uh, it's what South African rugby needs is to have a coach come in and be successful and know how to win and stay there and and, and grow that aura of the Springboks. So, um, as I said earlier, uh, playing against the Lions is always a phenomenal series. Um, but this COVID thing is also a bit of a mess up because most of our season is gone. They would, they're going to have played a little bit more rugby than our guys would have played, I think, uh, come along next year. And then also just to see what players are available. Um, how many players will left South mm-hmm. Africa be playing overseas? How many um, guys will will be in form at that stage? So, so it's a hard one, but I'd like to think that that the the guys who've taken over the Springbok um, uh, reigns now know what it's like to win, know what it takes to win, um, and that we have a core of those players from the World Cup lo- um, last year who will be guarding our side uh, next year. So. As I said, um, I'm incredibly proud to be a Springbok and, and, and of that side from last year. And I just hope that culture and that ethos of what it takes to be a successful Springbok is installed in the, in the players next year. And if that, that's the case, I think it's going to be a crack over series. Mark, a wonderful message to, uh, to wrap up with. Just from my side, thanks so much for taking the time and sharing your thoughts and, and remembering the, those years in, in 95, 25 years ago when you were three years old. <laughs> it's much appreciated and, and all the best on Absolute that side. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for your time and thanks for, um, for giving the opportunity to share some memories.
There is no doubt, Keith, that this Rugby World Cup has done so much for South Africa as a nation. And here they show it as their president, with his number six jersey, stands aloft to present the trophy. I think that lady there in the foreground with the New Zealand colours, who's as happy as the South African winners, says it all. Everybody should be celebrating. Francois Pina, the victorious South African captain. Francois Pina, you are the captain of the world champions. David, I don't know what to say. Uh, it's very emotional. The team is played superbly. It's been the greatest six weeks of my life. And uh, too many people to thank at this stage. What a tremendous contest. Yeah, it was very tough. Uh, the All Blacks played brilliant rugby. Uh, they kept in for the, for the extra 20 minutes. I want to take my hat off to them playing a superb tournament and well done Sean, you and your men. Francois, and then we had 65,000 South Africans here today, tremendous support. David, we didn't have 60,000 South Africans, we had 43 million South Africans. Thank you for listening and please join us again for the next SA Rugby podcast. For more, click on springbox.rugby or check out our social media channels.